Hi, this is Yolanda, and I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914, and we're on page 225 of chapter 25, and this heading is Calls and Callers, and the overall heading is Utah, which we're continuing on from. Enjoy. To go back to 1885, on the same day I visited with Mr. Lyne, two men came to call upon me, as I learned upon my return. They were J.J. and G.C. Riser, brothers, who had been shoemakers in Nauvoo, living a few blocks north of the Nauvoo mansion. I had been quite friendly with them as a boy, and sincerely regretted that I was also absent when they called upon me the next day. I should have enjoyed a visit with them, and was pleased that they remembered me. There was living in Salt Lake City at that time, quite near the western edge, and not far from the Denver and Rio Grande station, a sister in our church named Robbins. Through Sister Joseph Clark, this lady extended an invitation for Brother Anthony and myself to take dinner with her. At the appointed time, accordingly, we repaired to our home, where we met a number of people, Somewhat to my surprise, I soon discovered that one of the reasons I had been invited was to gratify the curiosity of a neighbour, Mrs John McAllister. She was a plugimous wife of handsome John McAllister, at that time in charge, I think, of some responsibilities at St George, perhaps the temple there, in the southern part of the territory where Brigham Young used to go for his winter residence. This wife, however, resided in Salt Lake City. She had professed an anxiety to see and converse with me. And it was at her request, I suppose, the dinner was planned and I invited to be present. At any rate, the meal proved very enjoyable and acceptable for Sister Robbins was an excellent cook. Her colleague was present, but so far as conversation with her was concerned, the interview was largely a failure, due partly to the fact that she had in attendance a male admirer by the same by the name of Thomas Ainsworth. He was undoubtedly greatly enamoured with the of the woman, and kept very close to her the whole time. Whatever conversation passed between us was in his presence and hearing. This fact did not deter her from asking me to state my belief in regard to plural marriage, which she attempted in a very cautious way to defend at the time, being evidently very self-conscious of its being an outrage of womanly delicacy and the innate modesty which should characterise every woman in society who attains her maturity, her majority, and for whom marriage may hold attractions. In her arguments, she was aided slightly by Ainsworth. He seemed very jealous of her, and evidently afraid she might, by some means, be led away from his influence. I stated the position we occupied as a body of believers, speaking frankly and freely in the presence of 
sister robins though avoiding language which might be construed as too strongly denunciatory of their beliefs of which either ainsworth or the lady herself could justly regard as indecorous or of too personal application during the interview mrs McAllister undertook to bear some testimony in the regard to affairs at Nauvoo. By a few questions, I quickly brought out the fact that she was some eight years younger than I and could not possibly have been knowing to the affairs of which she tried to bear witness. I felt a certain pity for this young woman. She had never known any other marriage relation than that accorded a polygamous wife and had been educated to believe the institution of polygamy was sacred. While I talked plainly to her, I tried to do so without finding fault with her own action or condition, which, even though I could not deem them other than repulsive, would have been unwise and unkind. I've always considered that the women of Mormondom, who accepted the conditions of plural marriage, did so under strong mental protest, and my conversations with numbers of them in the course of my travels in Utah confirmed me in that opinion. I have never regarded them as wickedly wicked, as one might say, but rather as being imposed upon by those who should have been their intellectual and spiritual protectors and guardians. I have thought they came under that class which are mentioned in the Book of Mormon, where Near the close of the second chapter of Jacob, the prophet is found to say that God would not suffer the men in his service to lead the tender minds of the daughters of Zion astray from truth and purity, and thus create distress and destruction for them. The interview lasted two or three hours. I finally returned to my lodgings, feeling some satisfaction in the realisation that I had met at least one woman who, while openly representing herself as a polygamous wife, or allowing herself to be understood as one, felt deeply and seriously the degradation of the anomalous position she occupied. She seemed one who I thought might sometime break the bond which held her to her husband and make an alliance with the suitor for her favour, and perhaps without much injury to her conscience. She was a young woman about 45 years of age and very handsome in form and feature. To me, she appeared mentally and spiritually as well as otherwise to be a living illustration of the shameful condition in which polygamous wives were sometimes compelled to live. Attending our meetings, there was a couple well past middle age who were introduced by Brother Ethan Barrows as Dr. and Mrs. Benedict. His title had come to him from having been a practicing physician. They had a son in the city who was also an MD. Mrs. Benedict showed considerable interest in our services, invited me to call upon them, and in many ways expressed their friendliness. They had obeyed the gospel in New Jersey under the preaching of an elder named Q.S. Sparks, whom I met in San Bernardino in 1876, had come west with others looking for Zion, and settling down in Salt Lake City, had lived quietly without attracting much attention or exhibiting their disapproval of conditions they found. In other words, as the old gentleman expressed it, they had strictly minded their own business, they had not fallen into the reconstruction theories advanced from time to time by Brigham Young, 
but had made themselves useful in a quiet way to the sick and the needy as opportunity offered and were satisfied to be left alone to enjoy their confidence in the pure principle of faith which had first intrigued them and to which in obedience they had espoused with gladness. They had avoided becoming entangled or um, in the later errors connected with the teaching and practice of polygamy, which had taken such hold upon the people. I was a frequent visitor at their home, and there met their son, the doctor, who was quite a strong character, a man of positive convictions, resolute and determined in action. Because he had performed a marriage ceremony for a young couple guilty of indiscretions, he had incurred the displeasure of the ruling authorities in the church there, who called him harshly to account for acting without the consent or knowledge of the presiding elder. This procedure aroused his indignation, and when a summons to appear before a high council had been served upon him, he gave a curt answer. The final outcome of this story I did not hear. I have often wondered if he made the apology demanded, or remained in his defiant attitude. He was very busy in his profession, and while our meeting was very pleasant, I had little opportunity to converse at length with him. I enjoyed visiting with the senior doctor and his wife, who lived so quietly by themselves and seemed so genuinely pleased to see me. It was through them I was given the opportunity of calling upon the widow of Orson Pratt, a visit I have already described in these pages. About this time I met Mr Stone, a reporter for the Democrat, and Mr John C. Young for the Tribune. Today, October 27th, 1913, there was read to me the notice of the death of Colonel William Nelson, for 35 years, publisher of the Salt Lake Tribune. He died at the age of 74. He had been a noted man among the Gentiles of that city. At the time of my visit to Utah in 1885, he was associated with Mr. C.C. C. Goodwin in publishing that paper. They sent John C. Young, son of Joseph Young and nephew of President Brigham Young, for the purpose of interview me about the nature of my visit to the territory and my impressions of the people and conditions there. I had an interesting time with him for in our conversation I interviewed him quite as much as he did me and obtained considerable information however much to my surprise the Tribune the next day came out with a most outrageous account of the visit full of misstatements and misrepresentations making me say things which I did not say, things which could not have but serve to create a spirit of antagonism against me in quarters where it did not exist before, and to fan into more active flame that which was already established. In company with Brother Robert Warnock, I took a copy of the paper with me and repaired to the office of the Tribune, and demanded a correction and an apology. I met strong opposition from this Colonel Nelson, who acted as chief spokesman of the part of the Tribune, but I was sufficiently positive in my, in the manuscript, this is Joseph, in one place and Venus in another, oh, that is signed AA, sorry, um, that was just a note. Um, I met strong opposition from this Colonel Nelson, who acted as chief spokesman on the part of the Tribune, but I was sufficiently positive in my... Um, statements and so strenuous he demanding in strenuous in demanding my rights that a day or two afterwards mr young endeavoured to justify himself and placate what he had written a correction was published an apology from j c young i had refused 
to recognise the occurrence as a personal matter or question of veracity between Mr Young and myself, and had clearly stated to Messrs Goodwin and Nelson that if I were not accorded my rights in the matter, I should take measures to force them to a proper justification, for I did not propose to be trifled with in the matter. Hence the apology, which was not all it should have been, but I was satisfied to let the matter drop, feeling it was likely the best I could get. I met Mr Young, but once afterwards, some months later, when with his mother and a sister, he was on his way north for the purpose of finding a better climate for the health of the young woman, of whose further fate I have no knowledge. His mother, and I believe one of her daughters, became members of the reorganised church, the former being received upon her original baptism. Mrs Young, whose given name was Lucy, was a first wife, and owing to the polygamous tendencies and marriages of her husband, had felt obliged to leave him. Thus she had become quite neglected and heartbroken. In a conversation with her daughter, the young woman, relating some past circumstance, referred several times to her brother. I asked the vivacious young woman, rattling along at a good chip clip, How many brothers have you? She stopped in her rapid speech, straightened her shoulders a bit and exclaimed, Oh, good Lord, Brother Joseph, how do I know? In that instant... Her gaiety was gone. Surprised, I looked from one to the other, as the girl added, very soberly and sadly, tears shone in her eyes. Brother Joseph, my father, was a very, very bad man. Of course, I could question her no further. She and her mother were then making preparations to start north. I saw them but once after this interview, when, as I have stated, I met them in the station at Ogden, accompanied by the young son and brother who had so misinterpreted me. I did not learn what became of them, though I heard, incidentally, that he was doing well. I should like to have kept in touch with that young man. Sister Young became thoroughly disgusted with the conditions by which she was surrounded, got out of the tolls and kept out, remaining a constant faithful devotee of the faith in which she had been baptised. Referring again to my newspaper experiences, I may say that in 1889, on another visit to Utah, I was asked by Goodwin and Nelson to write letters to the Tribune discussing my work there. And the manner in which I had been received in different places. This I declined to do, stating I had come for the purpose of doing the people good, if I could, that I had found some commendable things about them while they, the editors, were managing their paper from a different angle, treating the Mormon church as if there were nothing good in it whatsoever. Colonel Nelson seemed quite spiteful, answering with an oath, there may be some good in it, but I'll be damned if I ever found any. I replied that he might be right so far as he was concerned, but that I had been more successful than he, I had found considerable of good both in the original faith and in many of the people. One day soon after arriving in the city in 1885, I paid my respects to Governor Eli H. Murray, 
as handsome Eli. I found him a very pleasant gentleman indeed and quite willing to meet people on fair and easy terms. I had a lengthy chat with him, the topic of conversation being largely the condition of affairs in Utah and Salt Lake City. I called his attention to the fact that in the laws which had been enacted under the provisional government of the territory, Brigham Young had been granted some strange privileges which he had utilised in obtaining a monopoly of certain enterprises essential to the welfare and progress of the settlement there. I also mentioned the fact that under those laws of authority in regard to marriages had been lodged with the church organisation, which enactment I thought was a dangerous innovation and one which was incompatible with our accepted American institutions. Further, I spoke of the many flagrant violations of the existing laws on the marriage relation, which were then prevalent throughout the territory. Whether or not my conversation with Governor Murray had any effect in directing his mind to certain conditions, it is not my province to say, but I noticed that in his next report to the government, which was published, he called attention to some of the things we discussed and suggested that some of these enactments be changed or modified. In seeking the interview, I had explained who I was and what was the object of my mission in the West. He treated me very cordially, bade me be of good courage and promised to give me any aid that was in his power to properly extend. He did not commit himself in any wise, which was a very proper course under the circumstances, but my visit to him proved very timely in establishing a friendly understanding between us. Some other gentlemen I met about this time were a Reverend Armstrong, a politician by the name of Pat Mannon, at that time the leading owner of the Tribune, an attorney named Dixon, Major Herb, and a leading man of the Utah Church named V. Sertliff. It was always a pleasure for me to meet people, and they always interested me, whether or not I was destined to again come in contact with him. I'll leave that there and carry on with the next episode. Thank you for listening.